0: Up your Bibles, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're in this series on the life of the Apostle Paul, which started with a journey of Saul of Tarsus, because you can't understand Paul the Apostle unless you understand Saul of Tarsus. We've been talking about the first 10 years of Saul's life. So if you haven't already done so, pull out that note sheet and look at the little timeline. If you go ahead and stick the timeline up there on the slide for us, of just this is going to be, if you want a little overview of where we're headed for the next several months as a church from a preaching standpoint, we're just going to be preaching through the life of Paul the Apostle's journey. And we spent the first couple of weeks looking at his first 10 years of his life which are na- mainly silent years. They don't get a lot of attention. I felt like it warranted us taking a deeper dive and understanding that in Acts 9, he's in his early 30s, and that's his conversion. So the stages of faith diagram, you see that in your notes? Put that up there for us if you would. The stages of faith diagram, Paul starts stage 1, Acts 9, in his early 30s. And then he's journeying fairly quickly, ends up in the desert of Arabia, spends three years in the desert, in an Aramis season, in a wilderness, in a solitary place. And then he spends seven years at Tarsus, which basically are in obscurity. So a total of 10 10 years from his early 30s to his early 40s, there are what scholars call the silent years. And I would say in the stages of faith journey, Saul of Tarsus spent a good chunk of it there from stage three into four in the wilderness. The wilderness fueled the journey inward and all of this decades plus work lays the groundwork for what we're going to be stepping into today and in the months ahead. His journey outward, he's moving into stage five. But sometimes when we read the account in the scriptures, it just seems like it happened so quickly. But from Acts 9 to what we're reading out in Acts 13, it's over 10 years of time that's passed. And I think that's important for us to understand because sometimes in our enthusiasm as we come to Christ and we're excited to do something for him in the world, we can't lose sight over this deeper interior work. God's laying a foundation. He's building the beams of Saul's interior world to uphold the weight of responsibility in an exterior standpoint that he's going to be entrusted with. And I think the same holds true for us as well. If you haven't been in a Ramos season, just keep living. You'll be there. And God enjoys that space. He takes us there. He takes us out into those desert places, usually multiple times in our journey, to develop some things in us that will be on display as we continue to walk with him through every stage of life and ministry together. So that's where we're picking it up in Acts 13. Remember, Barnabas went knocking on Saul's door in Tarsus and said, hey, we've got a situation in Antioch. The situation is Greeks are showing up at the new membership class and we don't know what to do about it because Greeks and Jews don't typically kind of hang out together. So the Greeks are there. What do we do about it? Barnabas, I know who to go get. I know to get Saul. Let's go get Saul. He'll know what to do about it. And so they're there, they're in Antioch, which is on the border of modern-day Turkey and Syria today. That's where the church at Antioch is, and that's where we pick up the story. Verse 1, Acts 13, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, named, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene is not modern-day Libya. So you see the church is beginning to spread out. Remember, after Stephen's execution, they were concerned what happened to Stephen was going to happen to them, so they are all huddled up in Jerusalem, and now they begin to spread out. It's gone into Turkey, it's gone into Syria, it's gone into Libya. You see, that's where Jesus is moving out. His heart has always been for the nations. And then it says, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Notice, so this Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. This is the son of Herod the Great. This is the gentleman who was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. So, you could see where his view towards these Jesus followers was. This is Herod the Tetrarch, and he's responsible for kind of ruling over the Jewish territory under the Roman leadership. So, he's supposed to keep their thumb on the Jews, kind of keep them in line. That's what Herod's supposed to do. So, as long as the Jews are behaving, Herod's uh, in good shape. And if they weren't behaving, you could see his mode, just kind of execute people at his will. That's that Herod. And then there's Saul. This is Saul 2.0. This is Saul who's been spending time in the desert, who's been in obscurity, who's now being thrust to the forefront. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I want you to look at this through the lens. of This is normal Christian life. Do you see that? You can underline a few words there like, When you say yes to Jesus, here's what you're saying yes to. You're going to be gathering with other people who've said yes to Jesus. They're gathering together. What are they doing? Worshiping, praying, fasting, obeying. Not a bad grid for normal Christian life, right? So, when you say yes to Jesus, that's what you're signing up for. You're going to be getting together with other people who say yes to Jesus. And you're going to be worshiping together. You're going to be praying together. You're going to be fasting together. And you're going to be listening to what God wants done. And then you're going to do whatever it is God wants you to do. That's not like graduate school Christianity, that's like Christianity 101. That's just what it means to follow Jesus. This is what they're doing. So Saul and Barnabas, remember where Saul originally got his call? It was 10 plus years earlier when Ananias prayed over him and said, hey, Jesus has got plans for you. I know your plans were to shut the church down. Jesus has got plans for you. You're going to be expanding the church. Hi, you didn't see that one coming, did you, Saul? And so that was like 10 years ago, no doubt for Saul. He probably thought, well... Maybe Ananias just kind of missed it. Maybe it was some, I'm sure 10 plus years, he probably thought he's just going to be faithful and do what God asked him to do there in Tarsus, you know, making tents and taking care of family and until Barnabas comes knocking. And now the Holy Spirit says, it's time for you to get about the work I've commissioned and called you to do. So those of you who get a little bit farther along in life, don't think you've like graduated from Jesus' call and leading in your life. As you've heard me say many times around here, your most spiritually fruitful decade, research shows from a spiritual leadership standpoint, your 60s are your number one, your 70s are your number two, and your 50s are your number three. So I'm 53, so I'm at 312. Hold me to it. No coasting, right? I mean, go ahead, take a vacation, play some golf, enjoy that. But we can't just collect seashells in the Gulf of Mexico the rest of our life this way. That's not how this works. If you say yes to Jesus, Saul, he's in his early 40s before he gets moving. And he's only going to be on the scene until he gets executed at 62. So he's got a 20-year run. Think about that. Think about in 20 years what Jesus did with this man's life. 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Here we are. How many of our lives have been radically formed and shaped by what the Apostle Paul experienced and wrote down and lived out? Think about that in a 20-year run. So those of you getting up there in life... You might have 20 years left. It could perhaps be a 20-year run just like this. So no fading. Amen? No amens on that one. No fading. The younger generation is all amening for all of us older folks in, in the room here. And so Paul the apostle, right, he gets moving, and they're, and they're now they're praying. They're fasting. They're doing what God's asked them to do. And then verse 4, they're sent out. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Went down to Seleucia. That's a port city near Antioch. It's there in Syria. It's just where they get the boats out to sea. And sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Now, this John is John Mark, author of the Gospel of Mark. This is that John. So, Mark is with them. So, they've got a little team going. They're going out as a missionary team. And this is all, if you keep reading in verse 9, this is where Saul 2.0, his name gets changed. He kind of adopts a new name called Paul. This is where this happens. In Luke's little summary, all he says is Saul, who's also called Paul. That's it. And for the rest of the letter, he calls him Paul. So there's a lot of speculation about why. I think probably the clearest understanding I have of it is Saul is a mostly Jewish-rooted name. He's named after the first king of Israel, King Saul. So the Jews... Right, would call, often their children, Saul. So knowing mainly Jewish background and origin, but what's the call and commission on Paul's life? It's mainly a non-Jewish ministry. Remember, he's going to be a light to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world. So I think he adopted a name called Paul. It's Roman in origin, because he's a Roman citizen, but he's Jewish in, in upbringing. So Paul took on a Roman name to help, I think, his ministry go forward, and also, I don't think, don't miss this, Paul means little one. I think Saul 2.0 understood his appropriate smallness. You tracking with me? I think he understood that in the grand scheme of things, he's got drafted into a grand epic eternal story that little one which is why he'll later say, of sinners, I'm the worst. You know, this is, this is Paul the Apostle. Like, he, he understands just his, I think there's a humility that's worked in him. He's like, yeah, you know, Saul named after a king. Uh, let's set that aside. Let's embrace Paul, little one. Let's go with that. And so from this point forward, Luke references Saul 2.0 becomes Paul the Apostle. And we're going to look today at three elements that Mark, Paul's early ministry here. This is called, the map is called his first missionary journey. Did you put that up for us? The map for his first missionary journey. So you can kind of see, right, this. So his journey outward, I entitled this morning. There are three major missionary journeys in the book of Acts. This is his first one that he starts there in modern-day Syria, gets on a boat, heads over to Cyprus, and et cetera. Goes up through Turkey. Now, this is first movement of his journey out. We're going to look at three elements that Mark, this journey, and then kind of bridge them to our lives today. And the first one is what we see him doing here in verse 5. He goes to the synagogue and preaches the Word. There's a declaring. That's the first move of Paul, declaring the certainty of Jesus' supremacy. Do you see that? Like wherever Paul's at, He's a one-note Johnny. Like, people are probably like, Paul, didn't you just give that sermon last week or last month? Yep, same topic, same, same subject, same focus. The certainty of the supremacy of Jesus. That's what Paul's going to declare. He's going to go to the synagogues. Why the synagogues? Because that's where spiritual conversations are. And he's going to connect the dots from the Old Testament, which is where everyone in the synagogue will be talking about. They'd be talking about the Old Testament. he connects connect all the dots in the Old Testament storyline and connect them all to Jesus, That's what Paul's going to do. He's just going to keep doing that over and over. Go to the synagogue, connect the Old Testament storyline, see how the Torah, the law of Moses, is like an arrow pointing to Jesus. That's what he's going to do over and over and over. So this is why Paul's sermons would often end with, look at verse 38 of Acts 13. Therefore, my brothers, he's wrapping up a sermon there at the synagogue, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified. That's a big word. That's a big Bible word. They're justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. So you see like the law of Moses was laying the groundwork for Jesus. And there's no amen in that in the synagogue. I'm telling you that right now. And so listen to, I think N.T. Wright does a great job of summarizing this. N.T. Wright says, the story that began with Abraham. The story that is of how the one God was addressing the deep problems of the whole human race and hence of creation itself, follow this now, had reached its goal. Israel's God had defeated the forces of darkness that had held the nations captive and in a majestic second exodus had brought Jesus through death to resurrection and had thereby declared him to be David's true son, Israel's Messiah, and the world's true Lord. <laughs> how about that? That's it. That's what Paul's doing. He's declaring everywhere he goes the supremacy, the certainty of the supremacy of Jesus. That's like a marker in Paul's journey outward. It was shortly after we were coming out of COVID around here, we started regathering, people were starting to come back to church, and which I was meeting a whole bunch of folks that I had never met before, because a bunch of folks had joined us online during COVID, which was great. And right before service starts this one Sunday morning, it was right out there in the atrium, and there was this couple I had never seen before, and they said it was their first time here. And they said they had recently come to the area, and they were visiting churches, and the service was just getting ready to start. I think Bryce and the team were just starting into the first song, and he said, hey, we just, we got a couple questions, Pastor. We're just a couple things like, we just, can you clarify a couple things for us before we, you know, enter into the worship service? I said, sure. I said, sure. And I said, if we don't, if we can't cover them now, maybe we can chat later. And I said, well, we've just been really kind of frustrated and disappointed as we visited churches in the area. And so we just want to make sure that what's going on here aligns with our beliefs. And he had a really big, like, thick Bible, one of those, like, double stuff Oreo-sized ones, you know what I'm talking about, like, really big. I thought, okay. And I said, well, what, what particularly do you want to know about? And this was, this was what he had. He said, I just want to know if Jesus is a big deal around here. I was like, interesting. And he went on. He said, he said because we visit a lot of churches. And like, do you, are you like one of those churches that like talks about Jesus a lot and sings a lot of songs about Jesus? And like, like it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's just, it's, it's a little over the top, he said to him. And he wanted to know if, the, he wanted to find a church that was a little, kind of softer on the Jesus thing and focus more on God in general. Now, service is just getting ready to start. Everything inside of me is rising up, you know? (laughs) It was Communion Sunday that day. Right back there, the communion table was set up. I said, hey, come with me. And I took four or five steps. I said, stood him at the communion table. I said, let me succinctly say to your question, is Jesus a big deal around here? The answer is yes. And I said, let me, let me explain, like, you see these elements here? Like, Jesus is everything. The only explanation for this body is this broken body and this shed blood. Christ crucified, buried, raised. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. I said, it's, it's all about Jesus. I think we were singing a song, like one of those real Jesus-centered songs at the team, like they're just like belting out Jesus. We got communion here about Jesus. I said, and guess what I'm gonna be talking about this morning? And he goes, Jesus. I said, Yeah. I said, You're welcome to stay. You could be a judge for yourself. I left him standing by the communion table, because service I had to get moving up here, and I left him. I saw him standing by and it'd be an image I always carry, them standing by the communion table chatting and seeing them kind of walk towards the exits. You know, we live in a time where it's kind of, it's kind of cool to be vague about spiritual things today. You know what's not in today? Certainty is not in today. You know what's in today is kind of compromise, kind of, don't put your flag anywhere because you might bear the wrath of cancel culture. That's what's in today, right? Right? You don't want to draw a line in the sand. You can talk about God, faith, spiritual things, generalities, but you bring up the certainty of the supremacy of Jesus of Nazareth. Come on now, it's on. It's on. And I want you to know today, like, Jesus is absolutely a big deal around here because he is the centering reality of his church. The church was bought with his blood. There is no explanation for this gathering without Jesus. And for the Apostle Paul, he is going to with certainty, not vaguely, with clarity, declare what? There's a supreme. There's a supremacy to this Jesus. He has authority. Guess what? What Jesus says goes. Oh, that just really gets a lot of love today, right? Because the moment today you want to start declaring that your beliefs and your values and your practices get elevated to a place of authority and supremacy about how we're going to live our lives, you feeling it? This is not the cultural air we're breathing, but believe you me, this is the air of Jesus' church. And it's where the apostle Paul starts his ministry, and as we'll see it unfolds is we've got to prepare ourselves then for what Paul experienced, because I think we're increasingly in a much more kind of ethos of the New Testament era in our day and age. It's increasingly becoming what I think Paul the apostle was experiencing, because for Paul, it was Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. It was Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ raised. Jesus, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. It was always about him. He was a one-note Johnny everywhere he went. So if you didn't want to have a conversation about Jesus, don't have a conversation with Paul. <laughs> because he's saying this, the only explanation for his life is Jesus. I once was lost, but now I'm blind. <laughs> I once I couldn't see, now I can see. Damascus Road, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so Paul is going to declare and it is going to stir some things up as he does so. Not in a vague way. Paul, is Jesus a big deal around here? <laughs> Can you picture huh? Paul the Apostle? Had to, he's the only deal. He's not just a big deal. He's the only deal. Which then thrusts him into, no surprise, no, verse 6. As they're going along, they travel through the whole island. What are they doing through the whole island? Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. All right? As they're going, well, they meet a Jewish sorcerer. Wow. A false prophet named, notice, Bar-Jesus. Ha! Huh. Now, background here, Bar, Aramaic word for son. Jesus is the word used that day for savior. So this guy, who we learn later, his name is Elias. Eliamus thinks he's son and savior. Huh. Do you think that might be a little confrontational when Paul comes to town? He's going to be coming talking about the Son of God who's the Savior of the world. And Bar-Jesus is hearing about Jesus of Nazareth. It's either Bar-Jesus is Son and Savior or Jesus of Nazareth is Son and Savior. Do you see the certainty in the clarity? Do you see? Bar-Jesus isn't feeling it because he thinks he's Son and Savior. I'm sure we don't struggle with that going on today, but just imagine if we had a little struggles going on in our own world today where those who think they are Son and their Savior who step forth Bar-Jesus style And then verse 7, who was an attendant of the proconsul. Now, the proconsul was a governor. Think governor in that area, appointed by Rome. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. Notice this little phrase, Luke inserts, an intelligent man. What does that tell you? That tells you there perhaps were some proconsuls that he didn't feel that way about. (laughs) Right? Why would he insert that? I think he's trying to say, hey, Sergius Paulus, he's on it. Which means there might be some others, maybe not so much. <laughs> so, Sergius Paul is an intelligent man. He's really thinking this through. Look what he does. He sends for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. How about that? So, this Roman governor, who's an intelligent man, he wants to hear more of what Paul has to say. Oh, boy. Elimus now, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. You see that? So, this declaring the certainty of Jesus' supremacy immediately thrusts into the second element, the second marker of Paul's journey outward. There's a disturbing of the power structures of the day. Do you see that? Like people who were living the way of Jesus… There is a disturbance, a great disturbance that people living in Jesus' way bring. When you bring the gospel and you bring your life and you bring the values that Jesus brings to any setting and any culture, anywhere, it brings a great disturbance. Like it's stirring some things up. The island of Cyprus, it's, it's getting stirred up, right? To start, it's stirring up the spiritual. There's a spiritual power structure getting stirred up and disturbed, right? Disturbed. you see this? Eliamus is representing kingdom of darkness. No doubt Paul had something like this in mind when a few decades later he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus that we'll get to eventually. And he says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not what? Flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities and powers. I think he's thinking, oh, I remember, I remember on Cyprus with Elimus. I remember how that went. See, it wasn't flat, it was spiritual prince. The spiritual realm's getting stirred. Is it bar Jesus, Son and Savior, or is it Jesus of Nazareth, Son and Savior? As we declare the certainty of Jesus of Nazareth, it is going to disturb the spiritual beliefs in the power structures of the day. That's one of the roles of Jesus' church. we got to remain faithful to this. And it's going to shake up and sift, I think today, a vagueness about spiritual things. And that we have to bring a clarity about the certainty of the supremacy of Jesus over all things. That's the role of the church. That's the role of Jesus' people in the world today. That's what Paul's doing. It's not just the spiritual. There's a cultural, right? Do you see the cultural power structure that's getting stirred up? Sergius Paulus, the governor, wants to have a conversation with Paul about the gospel. Huh. Do you think that's stirring some things up? I promise you, Sergio Paulus has zero background on this storyline until Paul the Apostle shows up. And so there's a spiritual disruption. There's a cultural disruption. How about a relational disruption? There's Greeks worshiping with Jews now. There are Greeks coming to Jesus, and they're joining and gathering together. In the new family of Jesus, they're worshiping together. They're serving together. They're sitting together. They're actually acting like they like each other. That's crazy. It's hard to describe how radical that would be in that moment. So it's relational power structures. Do you see this? The gospel's being proclaimed, and the structures of the day are being disturbed. And then there's an economic. You say, where's the economic one? All you have to do is look ahead. Acts chapter 19, Paul arrives in a place called Ephesus in Acts 19, and all these people start coming to Jesus, and you know what they do? They burn their sorcery books. They take all their, like, idol material. They have a bonfire with all their, like, sorcery supplies. They burn it all. Who's upset? All the metal workers who work all the, do all the work for the idols. They make all the idols and sell it. The whole metal worker industry is like drying up. Because how? Because Christians showed up. Because the gospel came. The gospel began to disturb what? The spiritual, the relational, the cultural, and the economic structures of that day. We're all disturbed. That's what happens When Jesus' people begin to live Jesus' way with Jesus' message. And when you study church history, this is the impact. This is the impact. When followers of Jesus get involved in the culture, the governor of Bithynia, which is the northern territory of Turkey at this time, the governor of Bithynia, he writes this he said, quote, Christian influence resulted in temples and sacrifices being neglected, end quote. That was the governor. He's saying, oh, these Christians arrive in town and all of a sudden all the like sacrificial systems and the temples, like it's impacting all of that. That's drying up. Uh ha yes, which caused me to ask, I wonder today, church, what's the better barometer for how Jesus' church is doing in our world today? Is is, Is the barometer like just what churches are saying about each other? Like when you're out on the church circuit, like whose church is being talked about in the church circuit? Is that the... Is that the right barometer? Is the the right barometer the numbers of people who are showing up in big auditoriums on Sunday morning, is that the right barometer? Or the social media following, how many's got, however many social media, is that the right barometer? I think what Paul would say is the right barometer would be this. What is the Indianapolis Star? What articles is the Indianapolis Star writing about followers of Jesus in the city? That's the barometer, I think. That when star reporters start writing stories about, you know, I'm not sure exactly all that's going on in the city, but these Christians have showed up, and these Christians are like neglecting our cultural gods, and it's having an impact. It's changing like our cultural, economic, spiritual, like it's, it's affecting all layers, relational, like it's stirring all kinds of things up. We don't know what's going on, but the Christians are deployed there. I think, church, that's the better gauge. I think that's the better gauge for Jesus' people, actually being on mission and being about what He is about. Because the gospel, as Paul is outlining, has personal and public implications. When people get connected to Jesus, it's going to change their life, and it's going to change the lives of people around you. This is His way. And so, as we live out the gospel in this world today, the world should be impacted. You're like, well, that's plain pastor obvious, but that... That's how it should work, the Jesus people living Jesus way in a world increasingly non-Jesus like. That's where Paul finds himself, and he's declaring with certainty the supremacy of Jesus, and then immediately it's disturbing. Acts 19 says, a great disturbance broke out in Ephesus. Yeah, you know why? Christians showed up. (laughs) And what's it disturbing? Disturbing the cultural and economic and relational and spiritual power structures of that day. They're being sifted. Because when you live out a Jesus-centered worldview, it's going to change your life and it's going to change the life of people around you. Ask Saul of Tarsus. Ask Sergius Paulus. Ask Elimus. Does this Jesus-centered worldview change anything? Ask them. And it has public implications. Which, by the way, do you notice the Increasing public implications, this is where the pushback comes. The pushback comes from the culture this way. Hey, you Christians, would you just like dial it down a little bit? Just chill. Just calm down. Turn it down a notch. That's where where the pushback comes. Because when you begin to disturb some of the structures that have been set up that aren't gospel-centered and gospel-like, the pushback comes, hey, just chill relax. How do you think that went with Paul? There's no chill in Paul. He sees what's at stake and he's going to continue to declare this with certainty, this supremacy, and he's going to continue to stir up whatever needs to be stirred up and let the chips fall where they may. As Charles Stanley often is quoted as saying, obey God and leave the consequences to him. That's Paul's life. Just obey God, and I'm going to leave all the consequences to Him. And when you study church history, the pull is this way. The pull is to kind of lighten your Christianity, make it more tolerable, make it more broadly acceptable. And the greater the confrontation to the power structures of that day, the greater the pull to compromise and to blend with the times. That's the pull. And church, that's where we find ourselves in 2022. So it's your responsibility as a body of Christ in this place to hold us to it. That, by God's grace, shall not be us. We will remain faithful. Because that's G.K. Chesterton, Ted. I put this in your notes. Those who marry the spirit of the age will find themselves widows in the next. Huh. It's only Chesterton can say. By his grace, we shall not marry the spirit of the age. No compromise. No shading of the lines. No drifting to saying, oh, more tolerable, more vague. More, no Certainly in love and with respect and with gentleness, as the Scripture says, but make no mistake about it, with certainty and clarity. There is one supreme, and he is Jesus. And the reality of when people get a hold of him and start living his way, it's going to shake some things up. Which then leads us here. The third reality flows right out of these two. Suffering, the consequences of faithfulness. So, where does this show up in the story? We'll go to verse 49. Here's how the the sermon ends. He connects all the dots to Jesus with clarity and certainty. They're not feeling it. And so, verse 49, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. So, they went to the power structures of the day. You see that? Power structures of the day. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Wow. How about that? Did they go in the tank because of that? No. They're just like, all right, moving on. That little map you saw earlier, the red line on the map, they say, well, we're going to be here, we're going to preach about Jesus, the certainty of the supremacy of Jesus, we're going to let that stir up what it needs to stir up until you boot us out of town and wherever we go now, we're going to do the same thing. And we're going to do it with joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't see them like in the tank because of certain power structures of the day or trying to push back. They didn't freak out. They're just like suffering the consequences of faithfulness. Do you see that? Because when you declare Jesus the way they're declared Jesus, the way I'm calling us to be clear in our declaration of Jesus, make no mistake about it. There is going to be a consequence to remaining faithful. You see, compromise leads to comfort and convenience. Faithfulness leads to suffering. That's Paul's life. That's why your best life isn't now. That's why there's no prosperity gospel with Paul. Your best life is not now. Praise God, that's, it better not be now. Your best life is to come. It's all worth it. Faithfulness in suffering. And Paul, he bore tremendous fruit and he had the scars. He had the scars to show for it. And so I want you to think about these words, declaring, disturbing, and suffering. That's kind of the groundwork of the early church. First century, I think quite applicable for 2022. A good little grid for a vision for our ministry here. Declaring, disturbing, disrupting, and suffering. Worship team, come on back up. I want to close with one final story here. So last week, I left you off with Dietrich Bonhoeffer starting a little seminary at Finkenwald. So here's a picture for those of you who weren't here last week, kind of reset. Bonhoeffer was a pastor, a theologian, a writer. In Germany, during the era of history... And when Nazi and, Nazi and and Hitler, they were really growing to power. So he's there right at the beginning of World War II, just on the cusp of all of that. He starts the seminary in 1939. And so he's at Finkenwald, starting this little seminary. And he's got like 12. He's got these little kids. I mean, they look so young. Many of you commented, like, how young they look. That's, he's like, he's got to figure he's trying to figure out how do I live the gospel. Do you see him? He's going to declare the certainty of the supremacy of Jesus. How do you think that went with Hitler and the Nazis? There was another gospel that the Nazis were asking the churches to preach. It wasn't the supremacy of Jesus. It was the supremacy of Hitler. And you had a choice. Fall in line or faithfulness to the gospel will bring consequence. So Bonhoeffer saw this. He's like, well, I'm going to start a little seminary. And a little reporter heard about it, and a reporter came to visit him, write a story on Finkenwald, and he took him up on a hill through a clearing in the trees. He took him up on a hill, the reporter, and he said, look over here. And there's a massive Nazi training camp over here, thousands of young Nazi troops marching in alignment. He told the reporter, look over there. And then he said, look over here, this little ragtag Finkenwald seminary, this little nothing. And he, he told the reporter this. He pointed to Finkenwald, he said, this has to be stronger than that. so as he began to train these young men, the pressure to compromise grew. Hitler and sent out his troops, and a lot of Bonhoeffer's friends, one by one, they started kind of caving, Bonhoeffer would say, to the pressures of the Nazi gospel. Because they'd come knocking on the doors of the pastors and their churches and saying, hey, here's how you're going to lead. If you're going to lead in Germany, in this time in history, under Hitler's leadership, here's how your local church worship service is going to go. Here's the gospel and the teaching. And you could imagine for Bonhoeffer, who's in the stripes of the Apostle Paul, he's like, that's not how this works, Mr. Hitler. And so many of his friends began to kind of compromise, and they adopted the state church of Germany, and so it was really disturbing to Bonhoeffer. So you know what Bonhoeffer did? He upped the temperature around this declaring, he trained these young men, I'm going to send you out and we're going to have one clear message. We're going to declare that with certainty, the supremacy, not of Adolf Hitler, not of the Nazi regime, of Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to declare it. and We're going to preach it. Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ raised. We're going to preach it and we're going to live it. And it's going to shake up a bunch of power structures of that day and they're going to come for us. And we're going to remain faithful no matter the consequence. That's what happened. Years roll along. Eventually, Bonhoeffer shows up on Hitler's list and said, hey, this pastor over here, he, you need to deal with him. So they arrest Bonhoeffer. He's in German prison for 18 months. And then April 9th comes the day before he's executed, he has a little, it's like a little worship service in the jail. One of the guards or something asked him, hey, you know, you're going to get executed tomorrow. Like, do you want to lead? It was a Sunday morning. Do you want to lead? He led a little worship service in a German prison for whoever wanted to come. And he said a small group of people came. Well, during that whole era some elderly German people in the countryside started figuring out that Bonhoeffer was preaching the gospel and remaining faithful. And they, these older women, particularly raising grandchildren, they, when they go to local churches, guess what they were, they weren't hearing the gospel of Jesus anymore. They were hearing the gospel of Nazi Nazism. And so, they reputation said, hey, if you find Bonhoeffer and any of his students, go where they're at. They'll preach the gospel. And one of the elderly women said this about Bonhoeffer. I thought this was an amazing quote. Quote, she said, when you saw him preaching, you saw a young man who was entirely in God's grasp. Isn't that beautiful? So April 9th comes 1945. The Camp Doctor Flossenburg Prison. Dr. Hulstrung. Here's his quote. He's the camp doctor. He witnesses Bonhoeffer. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. Listen to this. In almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor. I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Declaring, disturbing, and suffering from Paul to Bonhoeffer to us today. May it be said of us as a people that we would remain faithful to the end like that. No matter what comes against us, that we'd stay faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this journey with the Apostle Paul. i just imagining all that you built in 10 plus years of silence and desert and obscurity and look at it now. It's so outwardly on display. What a spiritual giant, his faithfulness, his declaration, his obedience, his Unwavering faith and just a beautiful display that no doubt in Bonhoeffer's life had to greatly shape him. And so I can't help but think about here, here we are, 2022, by your Spirit, wherever we are, wherever you've placed us, help us to faithfully declare with certainty the supremacy of Jesus. And to live in your way that would disrupt whatever needs to be disrupted just simply by living the way of Jesus. And then by your grace, would you help us suffer whatever consequences may come from faithfulness to do it in a way that people would say it has to be Christ in them, the hope of glory. We pray it in Jesus' name.